Welcome to the Azure for Sports podcast, hosted by the Azure for Sports team at Microsoft. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Azure for Sports podcast. I'm Suzanne Tedrick, Infrastructure Specialist for the Azure for Sports team. As always, I am joined by my data and AI partner in crime, Mr. John Flynn. Hey, John, how's it going? Hey, Suzanne, it's going well. I'm, uh, I'm fanboying over here a little bit, to be honest with you, because this has been the the uh, pinnacle episode for me so far to record. I'm super excited. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have definitely just built up the suspense. I love it, John. Thank you. And yes, we are so excited for our guest for today's podcast. Uh, we are joined today by Phil Chang, who is the Director of Basketball Analytics with the LA Lakers. We, we cannot stress like how happy we are to have you here today, Phil. Appreciate that, Suzanne. John, good to see you all again. And always happy to kind of talk shop and I'm excited to, to get going on what you're interested in. Awesome. So let's go ahead and get rolling. So just to provide context to our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about your role and your work with the Lakers? Yeah, definitely. So as you mentioned, I'm director of basketball analytics for the LA Lakers uh, and that kind of department falls within the front office of the team. So basketball operations and Thinking, you know, more broadly, we report to the general manager of the team and thinking about decisions regarding personnel, obviously, but also thinking about broader operational pieces, scouting, how do we optimize the programs for care for our players, for the player health side, thinking about how we mix in the G League program with our broader organizational goals. So it kind of runs the gamut, but I would more broadly phrase my role as helping stakeholders make better decisions. So whether that, again, whether that is signing a particular player or doing a particular trade or working in the internal sort of toolbox of basketball operations we have, it, it does run that gamut. So as background, I studied applied math and statistics in college and went into finance for a year, went out of sports and, and came back with the NBA league office where I was with the basketball strategy and analytics group uh, led by Evan Wash. That's a great group that, you know, focuses a lot on the kind of style of play and, and the changes in, in the rules that the league provides to the teams and essentially making it a fair and entertaining playground for the teams to compete in. And so it was a fun journey to kind of go from that to go work for the Lakers, which was instead of trying to make everything fair for everybody, now you're trying to basically leverage the rules at hand uh, and win games and, and stay a step ahead okay. of the other teams. So it's been a fun kind of shift in perspective. And I've been at this role for four and a half years, almost five years. This is my fifth season. I came in midway through the 17, 18 season. So it's been fun. It's been definitely a roller coaster journey, but you know, happy to happy to be here. That's awesome. And, and I love the way you put that, right? You go from, from having to advocate fairness and now looking for competitive advantage, right? I mean, it, it's in the same realm, but that's great. I, I had the privilege of listening to you do a talk at the MIT Sloan Conference and something that you said really struck out really struck a nerve with me, right? Because one of the things that we do from a, an analytics perspective is work in a lot of data, in a lot of numbers, and we can spew out X, Y, Z theorems and forums and stuff. But you said something that really made sense immediately is that you consider yourself as a storyteller because if you get 30 seconds walking down with a coach on a decision that needs to be made based upon the analytics that you've run, showing dashboards, there's no time. Talking complex gobbledygook is no time. You learn the language and you paint a story. Do you want to talk about that just a little bit? I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Definitely. So 
with the state of you know the granularity of data we have and the amount of ways we can mine certain situations and specific use cases it is easy and tempting to get down the road of you know now let's measure like this defense in this particular scheme and then you know that that can be helpful in certain situations but as i'm sure you know drowning in gobbledygook is, is a tough <laughs> ask for anyone much much yes. less a coach in the midst of battle and so kind of my point of making that and and we've talked about this is it is sort of more about the acceptance than message per se, right? The messenger is only as good as how much, how well they can message, not as well as the, I don't know, topic itself, I guess. Yep. Yep. So that is interesting that, you know, sort of struck a nerve with you. I, I don't know if that's the right phrasing that you use, but basically that when I, in my experience working in sports, especially when these are very, I guess, you know, fast paced moving environments. There's not a lot of time to pause and specific to my sport, it's not like baseball or football where you have designated gaps between actions. It's kind of like a continuous free flowing situation. So yeah, to your point, like when you're walking with a coach, you have 20 seconds, you kind of need to, first of all, build up that trust over, over time before that discussion. So that they know the common terminology, yep. common vocabulary, and they're aware that you're kind of aligned in the same path forward with them, right? There's no ulterior motive. It's all kind of in the broader mission of making a better decision with playing this player more or less, changing up the scheme in the game. Yeah, I, that's interesting to hear you sort of gravitate to that because that is something I think is very underrated uh, in my role, not just with yeah. the NBA, but more broadly. I agree, man. I mean, you're painting those pictures, right? And, and your canvas is, is filled with data and you've got a, a brush to put on there that's going to translate. And, and you said something that I'd like to pick up on there. You said you, you build that level of trust. How... How do you find that happens? Because a lot of the coaching staff still today in, in, in the NBA, across all leagues, they're there because they can feel something or they're there because they have the intuition based upon experience and the experiences come from taking lumps and taking wins, et cetera. And then you come up with this data-driven insight. How do you build that level of trust that isn't just dismissed by the coach? Like, oh, what do you know? You've never been a coach or a data analyst. How do I trust you over me? How does that happen? There's definitely some stylistic and interpersonal sort of unique overfits to it. Like if I was a player in the NBA, I would lean on that definitely. <laughs> but, you know, as you say, I'm not. And, and so, yeah, to that point, like it's a lot about the not just the day before the game, but through training camp, when a coach comes in and they have this philosophy of how they want to play, just a like saying, I hear you is I think extremely helpful with talking to anyone who you need to build trust with, but especially with coaching staffs who have, like you said, a sort of battle tested philosophy that they are yeah. pretty confident in for the most part. The, the I hear you part's important, just understanding the validity of what they're saying. And there are some people I think out there who might be a little more hard headed and would say, if I don't agree with you, I'm going to say it right off the bat. But for me, it's like kind of a Socratic method of it, if I don't understand what you're saying and why you think that way, I can't refute it. And so that sort of right. approach really helps me think about it a lot too. And then from there, it's a lot of having a common vernacular and vocabulary. So in the sense of when you say the, the, the color red or the color blue, like as a coverage, like I know what that means. And now I'm going to present information to you in that framing. So it's more digestible for you. It's not like I'm speaking Spanish, they're speaking English. I'm trying to convert my Spanish and English in some right. and, and a big piece, the final piece I say is with coaching staffs and basketball minds and sports minds in particular, the film is kind of what speaks the greatest. And how okay. I sort of think about data a lot is the data is an approximation of what happens in real life, 
like if someone got a hold of your internet browsing history, A, you'd be in trouble. B, they would have <laughs> they would have somewhat of an understanding of who you are as a person based on your credit card transactions and your browsing history. But in order to get a full picture that a human would understand, you have to talk to the human. And so that's kind of how I view it with basketball, right? We have this granular data and we have ways to analyze patterns that, you know, perhaps our pattern addicted human brains can't process over, over time, especially over breadth of games and information. But ultimately when I'm talking about, this is why I think this strategy would be successful. It is most convenient and helpful to like lean on film as, as a big conduit of that information. Phil, there are so many great things that, that I really resonate with. I love the, the focus on empathy and really trying to understand people and where they come from and the focus on the quality of communication. I think that sometimes gets left out of translation with people. You're only as good as your best messenger and, and not being able to kind of translate these things to effectively get to each audience is, is I think it's not even just something that you see uh, with analytics, but I think in, in many different places, I think this is an area that a lot of people should be, be focusing on. I, I, I want to take a moment to talk a little bit about that data piece and, and how that's that's leveraged in sports. Do you think that data and analytics helps to create better players or do better players create better data and analytics? And that's a really insightful question. And I think the kind of standing perspective on it is you can think of it as a few ways, like using analytics to kind of measure, I guess, in business terms, your KPIs of how your players are performing and thinking about that Delta over time as, especially if it's a younger, more developing player, for example, right? Like if you're on a team that is, ha has rookies or has young players, and maybe the team is constructed in a way where you're probably not going to win many games in your future. Um, thinking about, I know like teams that do this, thinking about the player in terms of metrics they can hit as you need to run this many pick and rolls a game where you, you know, are faced with this number of actions. Like the the mental model of how a game is, or not even a game, how how a pattern is constructed in your head and being reactive and quick muscle memory and mental memory to it is really going through that iteration multiple, multiple times. And I think for younger players and think about player development, that's something that I think they need to gravitate more towards as instead of shooting percentages or scoring points and basically taking the long view of it. And I think the other point of it is that when you get to a certain point as a player, as a person, as a player, you always think about how can I add, how can I sort of continue to improve? But pragmatically speaking, there are points where certain players probably don't add much more to the toolbox beyond they've hit their ceiling, which is like admirable. Maybe they maintain that for years and years and years, but it's sort of a known commodity. And at that point, it, analytics shifts from a developmental informational piece, yeah, to a more, I guess, from the other frame, which is an evaluative piece. And I think most treatments in the public space of analytics view it as an evaluative piece because simply speaking, most usages aren't for teams and most usages, like if you or I are on Twitter, like writing something interesting about X player, like our actions and our insights are not prescriptive to the player. And so that's sort of where at a team it's very specific to let's focus on three or four things this player needs to improve upon and how can we measure that and how can we give the visibility to the player of, oh yeah, you know, my arc on my shot is improving or like, oh yeah, my volume and efficiency on pick and rolls is improving week after week after week and showing that film session 
right, of backing it up is, is really important. But I think your question is very nuanced and takes from a bunch of different angles, kind of different usages of these insights we can generate for sure. It's super interesting. Does it? Do you find it also works the converse, right? So say you've, you've got a player that's hit their ceiling and they're at their, their natural and trained maximum abilities. Yep. Now, if you run the analytics as an opposed, opposing member to that player, regardless of the sport discipline, does that not diminish some of the natural value that they bring to the team because you know how to compete against their natural talent that they have? Yeah, I think it's that that is interesting in thinking of like basically scouting an opponent and seeing are they reduced to just their numbers or are they more than that? Exactly right? the point. I, yes, yeah. I think that's yeah, that the broader question being like what value do they add beyond just like they get the ball in the corner and they dribble once and they get to the rim. Yeah, I, I mean that is also acknowledgement of what we cannot measure, I think, in a big way, right? And that's probably where you're poking at and maybe we can dive more into that. And to the point of encouragement of other players or Maybe it's active belittling of your teammates that makes you a worse impact on your team. It could be taken both ways as, as that. And I think that's something that it is important to watch our games for. And, and there are, you know, ultimately if, if your most interpersonal reactions, I think are probably moot to the end goal of putting the ball in the basket or the ball in the end zone. But if it is to the point where it's like that toxic, you would think it would actually show up in production somewhere. And so I'm sure there are ways to, to view it from the bigger picture, right? Of like yeah. I'm working with John, I'm working with Suzanne and they're just constantly yelling at me and my production is getting worse as their teammate. Like I can probably, you can probably see that through, through a right. derived metric, but to your point, like when thinking about looking at opposing players and what more they bring to the table, it's for 90% of players, I would say it is kind of the actions they actually undertake on the court. I'm, I'm not sure how much I'm not in the locker room every day. I'm not sure how much that affects things behind the scenes and, and roles, but from most players that play that we actually care about. That's that's kind of what we look at. That's interesting. And, and thank you for diving into that because one of the things that we talk about with, with the various analytics departments of, of various properties is what do we measure? Because there's almost an infinite possibility, number of possibilities on what we can measure, but what's actually gonna move the needle for us? Yeah. And then to your point, as you started, Phil, right? It's, is it scouting? Is it coaching? Is it revenue? Is it venue? There's so many different pillars of data that can be measured for something. So as, as, a, as a head of analytics, how do you make that delineation between, you know what, not going to measure that because we don't think that's going to be important versus, yep, that's gold. We're going there. I think uh, key to the decision process is actionability. And to the thread we've been okay. pulling on this whole time is, I think there's actually like kind of two distinctively opposite approaches to it that are both valuable. One being extremely granular and one being extremely high level that are both actionable. And I think instructive to the different, I guess, not scale, different like spectrums of, of decision-making within a team. So for example, with coaching, I think the most, mostly for coaching, it's like they want to build habits for their players. They want to build in things like review contests and always have your hand in this position. Like that's really, really granular. But even to the point of me being able to say, hey, when you think about the strategies you can't control on the court or on the field, that's usually player substitutions, style yeah. of play, offensive, defensive sets. And those broader level things are things that we control, but I would still consider those to be on the, I guess, granular end of the spectrum of sure. decision-making for players. You're saying, am I increasing this player's minutes by five and this player's 
by five the other way, right? Like that's that's kind of policy driven and not so much a indictment of they're good or bad. I'm sure it's part of it, right? Like this player is better than this player, but for the yeah, most sure. part, it's strategic and overfitting to your team. And on the exact opposite end of the spectrum is player decisions about like who to sign and who to trade for and and kind of thinking about the draft. And those tend to be because the more granular pieces, the usage, the personalities, everything involved can be, I think, a little unpredictable. It's a little simpler to treat the broader 10,000 foot view as just that, as like inherent quality of player. And you kind of narrow the the funnel that way of like the universe of players you want to think about. And then when you get to the point when you have four to five or seven players, you can kind of get more into the weeds on yeah. exactly how the coach would use them or exactly how you think about um, their collaboration with other teammates. But when I think about like what to undertake versus not, I think actionability is the North star of how we want to think about it. And the, the worst thing that we could do is create something that's cool to look at, but ultimately we can't do anything with. Right. And I have made that mistake in the past where it's like, Oh, look, this is the best player at this action that we never run. And like, to a way, <laughs> it is funny, like, right. Like as, as, analytical minds you want to be like i don't want to overfit to the situation Correct. but honestly with a team i have found it, it is a lot more helpful action ability wise to overfit to your situation and that just is something that i had to grapple with for a few years and ultimately coming to the conclusion that i'd rather have something that is overfit to us that is useful and correct and actionable than something that is more broadly generalizable that perhaps doesn't apply as much to us so that's kind of like how I've been thinking about it over the past few years. That's, that's wonderful. And sometimes you, it's almost like you have to have those teachable moments to kind of say, yeah. okay, this is not a good idea. <laughs> totally, totally. Sometimes I think part of my league office brain bleeds over and I, we had this period where we were writing newsletters, sort of internal newsletters of what's happening through the league and patterns and home court advantage, stuff like that. And I was like, this is so cool. And then after a month of doing this, it was like, well, I'm kind of doing something just for my own edification, not for anyone else. <laughs> exactly. No skin off anyone's back, but they're like, great. Like home court advantage is an all time, you know, low this year or all time high, whatever it is. Like, what do I do with this information? Right. And that was the kind of moment for me when I was like, ah, maybe this isn't the best use of my time. <laughs> <laughs> it happens that's that's how we learn and we get better so <laughs> yeah exactly um, not so afraid to admit it exactly so taking it a little a little higher level we were all at the mit sloan sports analytics conference earlier this year and we you know heard you know, your wonderful talk and many others and all just kind of centering around this whole concept of sports technology and you know its application and and where do we see it going so when you think of that term sports tech what what does that mean to you? I think tech and data are sort of two separate umbrellas and tech being one mechanism with which to capture data. And obviously data encompasses things like human to human interaction, that's data, right? Like observing players on court with each other, that's data to our eyes. But technology, when I think of sports tech, it, it more, I guess, concretely means hardware and ways to capture additional data. And so when I think of sports tech, I think of things like the tracking cameras for second spectrum, the wearable devices that teams are using more and more that capture heart rate and movement on court and player load, force plates that capture like player imbalance with their knees and when they're jumping. And not that I'm like a biomechanist by any means, but the, the sports tech umbrella, I think encompasses a lot of things, but most saliently probably just hardware that would capture information. And that's kind of where I see like 
a lot of growth coming up too, especially with, I think one area that could be really cool to be exploring is like virtual reality and thinking about how you kind of measure player psychological and instinctive responses to things, right? You can, you can watch film with a player. Like I think which ESPN football analyst does it with, with players, I forget, but you know, that that's really cool to see like, oh, this player is reacting in real time. Like this is the throw I should have made. This is the throw I shouldn't. And I know definitely we have a process that incorporates that, but the next step is like, right, like putting you in the actual situation. And it might be trippy at first, but I could see that being really useful <laughs> here. All of a sudden your evaluative metric is no longer what you like say with the benefit of even two seconds of thinking, but what you actually, your, your eyes pivot to, right? Like there are all these web tools, surveys that say, oh, when, you know, people go on the site, their eyes immediately go to here, they scan for two seconds and they go to here. And, you know, I couldn't write that down, but the ability to observe it is really cool. I think so. So, I mean, so I agree with you completely. I think a lot of, a lot of the augmented and virtual reality has been focused towards fan engagement, right? Today, right? How do you get me as the fan closer to the game, right? How do you get me on the court? Right? How do you get me in the action? Which is cool, and 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 it's something that I think has a has a very valid place in the 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 lifestyle of a fan. But I also think it's overlooked as as a training tool. Right. So we look at we speak to some of our MLB customers, and they they talk about having faced a picture they've never faced before because they'd be able to put on the goggles, right? And they can, so if I'm, a, if I'm coming in and I'm brand new and I've never, I've never stared down Garrett Cole before, I can take a heater from him, right? And, and, and be 50 miles away in, in um, a, a different stadium. So I think that's important. But when you say put a player in, in the action here, are you looking for them to recreate something that they did that was extremely good and seeing how they did this so they can build that muscle memory from observing themselves? Or are you looking to kind of roll that back and go to your point, oh, I should have thrown it here, or I actually should have done a different move than I did and try and go from there. Which do you think would be more beneficial? Or is it just a watch? Are they both beneficial? Yeah, to kind of rewind a second, I you know, this is all theoretical. This is something I would just love yeah, to see. Totally. I yep. want to hear more about your MLB customers and what what they use it for and yep. kind of your y'all's experience with it. But yep. yeah, when I I mean both both are useful, right? I think especially with younger players, it and the NBA speed that comes with it, right? You can kind of even see in the tracking data, like the amount of speed that they pass the ball with and the amount of speed they run with is such, so different than at the previous college or overseas levels. And for players that don't get a lot of minutes in NBA games, it can be hard to immediately see that because practice is still like a different piece than yeah. the actual NBA game against players, yeah, like you're not familiar with. And I would think that it's more useful from like a, a preliminary perspective of, having not seen this player, the situation before, as opposed to having lived it. Because I mean, it, it's great to re relive situations, especially if there is some sort of, I guess, for lack of a better word, trauma with it, or or some sort of mental block of, I, I was unable to do, I, I could see that like for injury, for example, right? Like knock on wood, someone has a pretty bad broken ankle or like ACL tear, like them being able to recapture like what it was like to, and I know players do that on YouTube. They just type in their name and say like, you know, Bill <laughs> Chang, like best dunks of career and like watch that to gas themselves <laughs> up. But I, I could see that being useful for the most part. I am talking more about the developmental point and, and something that I think I haven't really seen teams use yet that I, that, you know, we could adopt for MLB brethren. Yeah. I mean, I think what, so it, it, it's insightful. And it's also, I think it's on the premise now on the precipice now of becoming 
more prevalent across more leagues as well. And I think it's a lot of it has to do with delivery. I mean, if someone's throwing a projectile at you and you have a, a virtual reality or augmented reality goggles on, it's it's fairly straightforward. Something's coming at you at a rate of speed. What's your reaction time to that? And you can draw parallels between the real thing. But if you are then deciding that if you're fa- if you are the pitcher facing a batter and are you going to throw a fastball or you're going to throw a curve, again, it becomes slightly more subjective, right? Because that person in front of you is just a, a bot who's going to react to something coming at you versus you standing there. So it does have its limitations today. And again, I think that's part of the tech that you were saying earlier, right? Tech is more on, more often than not the hardware that delivers the experience. And as that gets better, you mentioned second spectrum, right? We're looking at, I mean, remember back in the day, if you wanted to have any skeletal data at all, you had to have markers on people and they're wearing silly yeah. suits or ping pong balls on them, right? Now you've got markerless stuff, right? So as the technology provides, it's great. How much do you think cloud plays into that advancement of the quote-unquote technology that's making our game of data and our game of analytics better, or hopefully better? Oh, hugely, yeah. I mean, I, I talked about this a bit at Sloan too in terms of like how much it's changed the game and and just hearing about the services that, you know, not hearing, living the services that the cloud providers are able to help us ena- enable are, are unbelievable. The example I always use is, with this certain set of data, it used to take us two days to do a backfill of the historical data. Now it takes us 20 minutes. The amount of processing and parallel ability of, of the servers and drivers that I no longer have to manage or that my predecessors might have had to is, you know, I can't tell you the peace of mind that that, that takes for us. So and more, more to that too, right? Like having your data stored on the cloud as opposed to locally, you don't have to worry about actually managing physical boxes thinking about yeah. it's it's automatically structured in a way with like Delta Lakes, for example, that is properly indexed. And and especially with the tracking data, it becomes a numbers game of, of the intractableness of that data can be massive. And instead of trawling through or manually creating your own indexes, like service cloud-based services like Delta Lake kind of do that for you. And, and, and something that helps us work really well with the data at hand, right? We can query it, we can, we can work with it and transform it in a way that's very scalable. And it is something that, frankly, modern developments would probably not be possible. If you look at some of the papers that come out at Sloan, even the past, you know, six, seven years ago, it was like, oh, methodology, like ran this on my machine for seven weeks. And now with industry and even people at, at universities have access to these kind of superchargers, like it's, it's a matter of just hooking it up to the, to the server that you have at hand and then sending it off to Azure to compute and bring it back. Right. So I think. To sum it up, it's definitely been a game changer. That's amazing, right? And I, and I, I love how you referenced the, the MIT Sloan conference as well, because there was a bunch of research papers that got promoted out that, that won the, the, the competition to go and be displayed in front of all these sports professionals. And to your point, every single one of them, I think there were seven in total, seven or nine in total that made it, all use cloud technology, right? So yeah. it is like the, if you're coming out through through college now, I think it's just more of the uh, more of the norm as well, of course. Cloud. What we mean by servers? We're not. We're not in that business. We're we're in, in developing solution business. That's interesting. It's sort of a left field question for you. If you're coming through college and you want a career in in both sports and analytics, I know that you went through finance and you came to this way. What would you advise someone if they wanted to get a start there? What would be your advice to them? I think the number one, I guess, common element of people I've seen. I've, I've kind of lived, a, I guess hiring generation of seeing people come up through sports analytics, not just myself, but seeing people who got hired at teams and 
two years later, they're doing great things. And the common thing that everyone sort of promotes about that is having a project and having a way to demonstrate in a short form, whether it's a site, whether it's even a viz or like a short one pager of okay. saying, I can do the full skill set from data collection, whether that, whatever that means, ingestion or scraping yeah. something to processing and having an original idea or, or some wrinkle on a non-original idea down to the point of design of the project, robust methodology and output of a something, of a graph, of a number of whatever you want to have and communication of it in a efficient and effective way. So for most students, I say, don't bite off more you can chew. If, if what you want to look into is Garrett Cole's tendencies against the Blue Jays, like do it, right? Like, but if you do it really well and in a way that's digestible and comprehensive and easy to follow and you send that to teams like I don't think people try to be try to ignore emails they don't try to they just a million emails come through looking the same but if yours but if yours has an attachment that says hey I can do this and this is why or like not even bragging about yourself but like I noticed this really interesting thing about Garrett Cole when he pitches against the cart or the Blue Jays or whatever it is like that gets people's attention and they say keep in touch I think when people try to break into it with just credentials and and a, a good attitude i think that's no longer enough because it is for the better or worse this sub industry within sports in terms of analytics is a lot more of a meritocracy than it is a i guess monarchy in a way like there's not a lot of like <laughs> if, if you promote someone's brother or sister or whatever to be like your staffer and they can't do anything technical you're like kind of screwed and you have to sort of eat that cost or, yep. or find something else for them to do so my, my advice is definitely the project and, and something ability to speak to it. It doesn't have to be sports. It could be marine biology, right? I know someone who worked who works with the Clippers and his first entry into the sporting world was with, I think, Daryl Morey at the time. He used to work for the Rockets, the staffer did. And he said he talked with Daryl about like astrophysics and Daryl wow. was super interested in that. And this guy was like, you know, a physics major and he just had like this interest in it and then come down the line, Daryl was like, oh, you're, you're smart. Like, what do you think about working for us? And maybe I'm butchering the story, Greg Payne, if, if you're listening, I'm sorry. But, uh, the, the, the general thesis is there of if you are an intelligent person working in whatever field you are and you're just interested in sports, you can probably figure it out, but we need kind of evidence that you can think through a project and a problem. I actually want to take that um, a little further because that's great advice, especially for, for folks who are trying to start out. It, it You're right. It's not a credential conversation anymore because we're all smart. We're all bright. We can pass certification exams, but projects and other things that demonstrate that we actually know how to apply our knowledge in a way that's actually meaningful resonates far more than anything else. But I think about the folks that are perhaps like very well established in their particular career where they have a lot of things to talk to, but the way how technology changes, it, it's so rapid that you, you constantly have to have this continuous learning mindset where you're acquiring skills and you're networking with people and, and kind of really building that. So I, the, the question is for the, the folks that are more mid-career or well established, what are the things that they should be thinking about to expand on you know, their domain and their leadership? What should they be pursuing? I, I guess it really depends on the person, obviously in the context they're in, but the people that I've found with the greatest success are constantly trying to branch out into different topics, if not different skill sets. Skill sets can be sort of a toss up with the specific person or role you're in. It could be like, hey, you're more on the data engineering side or you're more on the data scientist side like that 
is kind of by person, but the common factor is definitely like branching out and making yourself comfortable with, I'm not a scout, but I'm going to go sit with my scouts at a college game and sort of just listen to them talk for two hours and think about what they have to say, because ultimately in this industry and in this space, it is a lot about being fluent in a bunch of different languages within, you know, the agencies, the scouting departments, the player health, the, the coaching staffs, like all of them are kind of their own separate little bubble, like sub bubbles of the broader basketball environment, the broader sports environment. And so when I think about like the mid-levels and higher, it's, it is becoming that to the point where you are an expert in many different categories, if not an expert, at least conversational. And, and I think that buys a lot of credit too. If your boss had no idea what you did and couldn't begin to fathom, like sort of like what you do, like it's, it's naturally harder to follow that vision than it is if you do. So uh, that's kind of what I, what I've been trying to work on myself and, and seeing other people do the same has been inspiring. That's awesome. I think one of the things that, and, and feel free to feel free to plead the fifth on this one, right? But do you think that teams, no matter the discipline that have a quote unquote good analytics practice, right? They have these, these individuals that are fluent in multiple areas, not just their own swim lane, right? And they understand the storytelling and they can convey these very complex, um, complex situations in a in a heartbeat or in that 22nd coach world. do you think that the, the clubs and teams that have a good analytics department win more games or have a better product on the field court diamond whatever it is yeah that's that's a hard binary question to pose right i mean <laughs> yeah. sometimes teams win because they have good analytics staff sometimes teams are not good so they hire one to like really try to build it up and <laughs> And definitely teams are different life cycles and it's, it is fun. It is funny. It's like almost independent, right? Because they can provide value, whether you're at the contention side or whether you're at the rebuilding side in yeah. different ways. I do tend to think it is something that, you know, analogously is like, do you win because you have a good scouting department? Like not necessarily. You, you could just have in the stage of this career of the team, like a team that doesn't have to rely on the scouting department or analytics department or player health or whatever it is. It kind of, really depends but i think there is they're compounded together there is a delta that i don't think teams can overcome if if you're deficient in all these categories it's sort of a you a lot more things have to break right for you to be successful than than if not it is a good question right like i know the teams that don't have analytic robust analytic staffs or capabilities just probably feel less informed or prepared and that's half the battle right yeah. and the teams that do like at least feel like they're doing the work into it, which small sample sport, like this, that's the whole idea of it is that it's fun just to like, there's so much chaos year after year after year, but if at least you feel good about it, then you can say, well, my car broke down, but at least I brushed my teeth this morning. Right. (laughs) Right. I think it's it's interesting. And thank you for that. I know it's a, it's always an unanswerable question. So I'm not being very fair. So I, I do appreciate that. But do you think, so in your role, do you think it's, it's easier having a team that is more established and hits the court repeatedly season after season, or if you have a high turnover team, because with the high turnover team, you don't have your own baseline that you created with your methodology. Before you look at the Lakers, you have a lot of, uh, you have a, obviously a very longstanding team member that, that is differentiator on the, on the court versus the people that are coming in on high turnover, which is the ideal state for you as, as in the analytics realm. Personally, for me, I, I like having just more information in general. I guess from my first inclination of that is I want 
as much. And, and it's helpful when, even though the number of players has changed to your point, right? Like LeBron and Anthony Davis being on our team for the past few years has shown us like what has and hasn't worked with them. And like the flip side of that coin is like when you have players coming in and out, you get more information on those players too. And so it's kind of like a, a, a two ended sword, I guess. But I, I personally lean more towards it is a lot easier to keep one variable in place or two variables in place or whatever, and then adjust around than it is wholesale change. Um, it probably is less of a, I don't know, interesting is the wrong word, less of a like active situation if you, than if you had constant change and development of players over and over and over again. But I think a good understanding of, ba like to your point, baselining of what works and what doesn't with these assumptions is very valuable when it comes to my role because then building off these base assumptions, you can tweak it and sort of, you yeah. have a prior, you don't have to like discover your prior during the season, right? If you gave me 15 Martians, I'd be like, what do I do with these guys? And by the time you figure out what's going on with them, it's halfway through the year and you're, it's, it's, you're in trouble. So I do, I do lean more towards that stability point, but not to say that to what, what I was saying earlier, there's not, not to say that there isn't value with what we do when new people come in. That's part of the value is saying these players never played together how would they fit? And my job right. is to kind of give you an approximate answer of that. I mean, it, yeah, it also depends on the life stage of the team. So that, that that's a, also an unanswerable question. Thank you very much. No, you're welcome. I, I like giving you these these multiple variables that never take us into a straight line. <laughs> likes giving people a hard time. Uh <laughs> yeah. I'm totally, I'm totally teasing. But Phil, we're we're right at the 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 end of our time, and and I can't stress enough. It's it's been a pleasure um, talking with you. My final question: What do you think is the, the the next big thing that we should be focusing on for this year and beyond? Yeah, as far as it relates to the cross section of analytics and sports, I I think the continued adoption of cloud. Obviously, that's kind of an undercurrent to the whole thing. Um, through the teams that don't yet use it or teams that are just beginning to explore its capabilities. As far as more topically, as opposed to undercurrent, I think the continued optimization of human performance is something that's going to keep blowing up because not only with addition of skeletal data, data in an informed way, which you all have referred to, but also to the granularity of the data captured and ability to process it in a way that's helpful. And just culturally, the continued movement towards human performance care and whatever that means like right in in epl soccer players wear heart rate monitors and and employ all sorts of these techniques to kind of ensure their peak performance levels and i think in north american sports we're just kind of starting to get there and yeah. so I, I kind of see that being the piece of it where it's like the strategy side everyone is sort of within plus or minus of each other for the most part and, and the player performance side is probably the next point it's like if you're performing 80 percent capacity every day like that last 20% is going to be way better than any strategy we could employ. That's kind of what I see being the future for the next few years. And it's something that we'll, ha we'll have to grapple with too. As, as non-bioscience experts, we have to consult a lot with our training staffs and think about how we can optimize player performance. Excellent. Again, it was a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for your time and you know, learning about your experiences. We would love to have you back as a guest in a future episode if you ever have the, the time and inclination. Definitely. And I appreciate y'all's questions. It's, it's been a really fun discussion. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I've been so excited for this. And I think I've learned 
more in the past 45 minutes than I have in the past 45 years. When I get there, of course. Um, to do that <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for, I can't thank you enough, mate. I mean, it's been, every conversation with you is a learning moment on sports and analytics in general, right? So thank you for spending a little bit of time with us and, and thank you very much for, for being so forward and, and sorry for the tough questions, but if anyone can handle them, it's you, mate. So I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. Thanks again. <laughs> Awesome. Well, with that, we'll bring our podcast to a close, but thanks so much for spending the time with us. As always, please reach out to let us know how we're doing, as well as for any future topics you'd like to hear about. Until next time, take care and we'll see you soon.